DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. When we enter into the 21st section of this eighth day, paragraph 21, there is such a movement where she's calling us into a symphony of silence, isn't she? An adoration. They fall down and adore. They cast down their crowns. First of all, the soul should fall down, should plunge into the abyss of its nothingness, sinking so deeply into it that in the beautiful expression of a mystic, it finds true, unchanging, and perfect peace, which no one can disturb, for it has plunged so low that no one will look for it there. Then it can adore. Adoration, ah, that is a word from heaven. It seems to me it can be defined as the ecstasy of love. It is love overcome by the beauty the strength, the immense grandeur of the object loved, and it falls down in a kind of faint, in an utterly profound silence, that silence of which David spoke when he exclaimed, Silence is your praise. Yes, this is the most beautiful praise, since it is sung eternally in the bosom of the tranquil trinity. And it is also the last effort of the soul that overflows and can say no more. Adore the Lord, for he is holy, the psalmist says. And again, they will adore him always because of himself. The soul that is absorbed in recollection of these thoughts, that penetrates them with this mind of God of which St. Paul speaks, lives in an anticipated heaven, beyond all that passes, beyond the clouds, beyond itself. It knows that he whom it adores possesses in himself all happiness and all glory and casting its crown before him as the blessed do it despises self loses sight of self 
and finds its beatitude in that of the adored being in the midst of every suffering and sorrow. For it has left self, it has passed into another. It seems to me that in this attitude of adoration, the soul resembles those wells of which St. John of the Cross speaks, which receive the waters that flow down from Lebanon. And we can say on seeing it, the impetus of the river delights the city of God. This is a profoundly rich text. It's challenging. There's so much here for us. Let me point out the last couple things here about St. John of the Cross. If you were to study his poetry, this image at the end of the poem about the uh, overflowing waters comes from living flame of love. And in this poem, he's actually... This poem is, is kind of his masterwork. He wrote it in two weeks while he was in a state of deep prayer himself. And he picks up this theme of, uh, of the river that delights the city of God, the waters that flow down from Lebanon. These are themes he had already meditated on several years before when he was imprisoned by his brother Carmelites. His brother Carmelites threw him into prison because they thought he was too radical the importance he gave to mental prayer disturbed them, and, and they kind of thought that if he wanted to live with like that, that was okay, but you shouldn't really be living, re leading a reform and in inviting other people to into this because we're not sure it's good. And so they, they put him in prison for nine months, and the prison was in a town called, called Toledo. Around the outskirts of Toledo, a river flows, uh, the Tagus River, the cell was just a little broom closet. Barely any light came in, hardly any fresh air. It was squalid conditions, very uncomfortable, cold during the winter, hot during the summer. And so he needed to pray in order to survive this captivity in which he spent most of his nine months. He was not properly nourished, not properly clothed for this period of time. But he learned to attend to the presence of God, and an image for the presence of God became for him the sound of the Tagus River, a sound that he could hear through the little slit that didn't even let in enough light uh, that he could see anything or enough fresh air that he could really breathe well, but did let in the sound of the river, and the sound of the river became for him a symbol of what the faith is, the what God's love is. God's love is all around us. We can't feel it. We can't even uh, see it. By, faith comes by hearing. And in the doctrine of the church, as we think about the doctrine of the church, as we listen to the doctrine of the church, God's love flows through it all. That image is an image that Elizabeth of the Trinity is picking, on, uh, picking up on here. It's an image of faith in love. The water that we hear rushing around us, the water that refreshes us, the water that gives us hope, is the waters of God's love. These waters delight the city of God. Do you see what this does for our worship and our adoration? People kind of look at worship as a kind of obligation, 
I go to mass, I kneel when I'm supposed to kneel, I make the sign of cross when I'm supposed to make the sign of cross, and I leave. And even some people approach Eucharistic adoration like this. I've signed up for an hour of Eucharistic adoration uh, at my parish. I go in, I put in my time, maybe I fall asleep and I leave. Well, on one hand, it's good to go to Mass. And on the other hand, it's good to go to adoration. But the external observance of Mass and the external observance of adoration is just a shadow of what Elizabeth of the Trinity is talking about. She's talking about a form of prayer which is watered, drenched with the love of God, a kind of prayer that is overcome with wonder, a kind of prayer in which you humble yourself before the Lord because he is so great and so good and so beautiful. You realize everything you have that is good in you comes from him anyway, and the only thing you have to offer him is your own nothingness, your your misery, the sorrows of your heart. Those are the things that we can give to the Lord. Nothing else uh, we have is the fruits of our own work. If we have anything good in us, it's from him. And when you see him, you realize that because you see his goodness and it helps you understand how his goodness is present in you. And then it helps you see yourself. So it's kind of painful kind of prayer too. And I, and I think this is probably one of the big blocks to it is a lot of people don't want to enter into the depths of this prayer because it's a painful place to go to kind of realize the truth about yourself, the truth about yourself in terms of your accomplishments and who you think you are against the reality of what God is doing and who you really are in his eyes. Yes, this is the most beautiful praise, since it is sung eternally in the bosom of the tranquil trinity, and it is also the last effort of the soul that overflows and can say no more. Adore the Lord, for he is holy, the psalmist says, and again, they will adore him always because of himself. The soul that is absorbed in recollection of these thoughts, that penetrates them with this mind of God of which St. Paul speaks, lives in an anticipated heaven, beyond all that passes, beyond the clouds, beyond itself. It knows that he whom it adores possesses in himself all happiness and all glory and casting its crown before him as the blessed do, it despises self, loses sight of self, and finds its beatitude in that of the adored being, in the midst of every suffering and sorrow. For it has left self. It has passed into another. It seems to me that in this attitude of adoration, the soul resembles those wells of which St. John of the Cross speaks, which receive the waters that flow down from Lebanon. And we can say on seeing it, the impetus of the river delights the city of God.
There's also, you know, that element in the the beginning of the section where she talks about silence, mm-hmm. and it's almost that that silence that you just. It's almost a piece because sometimes, don't we, Anthony, we feel the need to say something or to, to explain, to sh- even like with Peter, he was so awestruck at the transfiguration. He, well, he wanted to build, bo- he wanted to do something. But the type of silence that she's talking about here is one that's so at peace and at, in union that it's perfectly safe just to be there without having the tension of wanting to say something. Yeah, I well, I have two things. One, I mean, if we go to prayer and you want to say things, I, I don't think it displeases God for us to pour out our hearts. I think he's really interested sure. in all those wonderful things we want to say to him. Uh, but to enter into the kind of silence that you're talking about requires this kind of acceptance of your interior poverty. And, and that is, uh, at the end of the day, after you poured out your heart and there's nothing more to say, then you can begin to see the truth of who you are. And all your attempts to be clever before God and, and all the things that you thought you understood about your situation and what you really needed. Uh, now you can kind of scrutinize those and realize, well, all this is, has degrees of truth in it, but it's not the deepest truth. It's not the deepest truth. The deepest truth is, um, uh, is something that I can't articulate, that's too painful for me to articulate. It's a, a truth that all I can do is accept humbly accept. And the deepest truth is that in this very painful depth of who I really am before God, this is where God has chosen to manifest his love, to disclose. And before that manifestation, it's so glorious and beautiful and wondrous, so overwhelming, there's no words to say. Probably the closest analogy that I can think of to an experience like this is kind of that moment when you've met the person uh, who, whom you want to be your life companion and your husband, your wife. You've met them. You've got to know them. You've, you've had fun together and so forth. And then in your heart, in the deepest part of your heart, you realize, I want to marry this person. I want to be with this person for the rest of my life. And so you give, in one way or another, you articulate that, you disclose it to the person that you love with the hope that that they're going to, to say yes to what you're proposing to them. Mm-hmm. And when they do say yes, there's a moment there uh, where you're both kind of very vulnerable before each other. You both revealed the secret of your heart. And it's a tender moment in which nothing else can be said. Nor would it be appropriate to say, you've surrendered yourself to your beloved, and now you trust him or her to take care of your heart that you've just given them. Well, that's a silent love, but a silent love in which more is spoken than all the words in heaven and earth could contain it's, it's a moment of love. It's a silence filled with meaning. So when she's talking about the silence of adoration, she doesn't mean the silence where we just kind of are tuned out and not attentive to what's going on. She means a silence baptized in the deepest, deepest heartfelt meaning. 
meaning so deep that there are no words to express it. That's the kind of silence that adoration is. It's, it's a silenced, as I was saying before, watered by the love of God. The river of God's love runs through this silence. Mm, so powerful. What else should we try to be open to in this particular day? I just don't want to miss because there's so much. I, it's almost like it's like walking into a, a beautiful food store that has so much there. You, you just don't even appreciate what's being offered to you. Mm. Well, we've kind of gone backwards through this passage. So this butts in with what, what she indicates at the beginning of this passage is the pathway into this adoration. She says, first of all, the soul should fall down, uh, should plunge into the abyss of nothingness. And that sounds, the, those sound like very difficult words, and so that's why I kind of wanted to end our reflections uh, with this uh, rather than begin with this. For a lot of people, this uh, seems to be an invitation into some kind of self-loathing, and that's not what she has in mind at all. But this is wisdom to a soul that is intent like the souls in heaven. Who are the souls in heaven? The souls of heaven are the souls that have spent themselves trying to love and serve God with all their strength and all their might and all their energy, their whole lives, their whole everything, they spent to try to love God. In expending themselves in that effort, Jesus was able to give himself to them because their effort didn't achieve his love, didn't merit his love, didn't prove his love. Their effort made space for his love. And now behind this is kind of a great truth. When you try to love God, what you're confronted with isn't your great successes and all your achievements and all the wonderful things that you've done for God. If you're really humble in your effort to serve the living God, to love God, if you're humble about it, what you confront is the fact that you're incapable of loving him the way he ought to be loved. So when she's talking about nothingness here, she's not talking about having a, a pity pot situation where you feel sorry for yourself. She's talking about a soul that is loving, making every effort to love God, and in these efforts, discovering its inadequacy, how incapable it is of loving him. And, and in that, aching, aching that it can't love God more pierced to the very core of its being, that it cannot love the way it wants to love. This is what it means to realize your nothingness. And she says, this hurt, when you feel this hurt, that you want to love God more, but you're faced with your inadequacies and your weakness, and all you see is that uh, you're kind of a bucket of misery, and you try to offer that bucket of misery to God anyway, because it's all you have to offer. This is the soul that is finally free to enter into adoration. Why is it free to enter into adoration? Because nothing can disturb it. You see, to adore the living God, your heart must be vulnerable to wonder. If your heart is 
is drunk on its own achievements, psychological achievements, sociological achievements, achievements in your marriage or as a parent or as a son or daughter, as long as we are drunk and gluttons uh, with our own achievements, we are vulnerable to all kinds of disturbances. We are vulnerable to being impatient. We are vulnerable to all kinds of thoughts, uh, anxieties, uh, ambitions. They all run through our heart. And the more these kinds of things are running through our heart and distracting us, the less free we are to wonder over the glory and splendor of the Lord. But a heart, though, that kind of has surrendered itself, abandoned itself, given everything to love God, and sees before it, it broken, oh-hearted over all its imperfections, waiting for the Lord to deliver it, yearning for the Lord to come and, and visit it. This soul is completely focused on God. This soul, as we started out in this retreat, this whole retreat began with the word neshiwi. I no longer know anything. No, I no longer know anything except Christ and him crucified. This soul that she's speaking of that is able to enter into this kind of adoration and this kind of silence is, is a soul that has allowed itself to be pulled into this deep kind of humility. Humility here is such a powerful word, this awareness, this painful awareness of our nothingness. Humility comes from the word humus, which means fertile soil. And it's only in the fertile soil that God can plant his word in our hearts so that it can bear much fruit. And the word of God's wonder, when it's planted in our hearts, bears fruit in the silent adoration of our whole being. And in God's eyes, there is nothing more precious or more valuable in all the universe than one single thought filled with God. One human thought filled with God delights God, delights God more than aught else. And Elizabeth of the Trinity in this passage, she's saying, if you want to live a life with thoughts filled, silent thoughts filled with adoration, thoughts watered with the river of God's love, if you want to go there, you need to let him take you to take you into a very painful, humble place. And when you go there, nothing can disturb you from the adoration which he will give you. Any final thoughts on this particular passage on this day? Well, let's kind of close with Elizabeth's uh, exhortation because some of this teaching that I've just given is very, very hard to hear and even harder to receive because there are painful places to go sorrows, misery in our soul, that uh, we spend a great deal of time in our day-to-day -day lives trying to avoid, and we don't surrender to God. And yet, and, and even if we want to surrender it, we don't know how. And what Elizabeth does, one more thing she does in this passage is she invites us even just to begin considering doing this. Consider doing this for the Lord out of love for him. The soul that is, is absorbed in recollection of these thoughts, the ones that we've just talked about, that penetrates them with the mind of God, lives in an anticipated heaven beyond all that passes, beyond the clouds, beyond itself.
it knows that he whom it adores possesses in himself all happiness and all glory and casting down before him as the blessed do it despises itself and loses sight of itself and finds its beatitude in the adored being in the midst of every suffering and sorrow I think Elizabeth of the Trinity is inviting us even if we don't feel that we are able to face some of the darkness that's in our lives and offer it to God I think Elizabeth of the Trinity is saying even in the effort of trying to do this out of love for him you've already begun to realize it you've already begun to feast on the feast of heaven you've already availed your soul to be watered with the waters that water the city of God the waters of God's love they fall down and adore they cast down their crowns first of all the soul should fall down should plunge into the abyss of its nothingness sinking so deeply into it that in the beautiful expression of a mystic it finds true unchanging and perfect peace which no one can disturb for it has plunged so low that no one will look for it there then it can adore adoration ah that is a word from heaven it seems to me it can be defined as the ecstasy of love it is love overcome by the beauty the strength the immense grandeur of the object loved and it falls down in a kind of faint in an utterly profound silence that silence of which david spoke when he exclaimed silence is your praise yes this is the most beautiful praise since it is sung eternally in the bosom of the tranquil trinity and it is also the last effort of the soul that overflows and can say no more you've been listening to beginning to pray with dr anthony lewis to hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Wallace.